Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, founder of Achievable. Our affordable $199 online GRE course includes everything you need to ace your GRE. A full textbook, tons of GRE questions backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, and full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout. Also, if you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, please contact me at tyler at achievable.me with the subject line podcast topic. Now, let's get started. So today we have Amy Seeley of Seeley Test Pros on the show with us. And Amy, I'd love if you could introduce yourself and, and the many things that you're involved with, actually. Absolutely. So I am the president of Seeley Test Pros, which is a test preparation and tutoring company in the greater Cleveland area. Um my company has been around for actually uh, approaching 17 years, which is crazy. Um, but wow. I actually have been in the test preparation space for the entire length of my career, which means that, let's see, I think this is, I'm entering my 29th year of helping students um, from a variety of levels prepare for standardized exams for things like high school admissions, college admissions, grad school admissions. So we do tests like the GRE with our clientele. Um, and then I also am the co-host of the Test and the Rest College Admissions Industry Podcast, where we talk about all kinds of mm-hmm. things, testing, learning, education, um, most especially in the college admission space. And then I am a founding board member of the National Test Prep Association, which is a nonprofit industry group for um, like-minded test preppers Um I would like to say across the, the country, <laughs> but also we have members across the world. So it's pretty exciting um, to be a part of working with colleagues who do the work that I do and share best practices um, through the National Test Prep Association. Yeah, that's great. And those kind of communities are super important. Um, really glad to have you on the show. No, thanks now, for having me. Yeah. And, and you said today's topic was a favorite of yours. Um yeah, we were talking about it a little bit before we started, which is how to master GRE quantitative comparison problems. A hundred percent. I love them. Well, so I should sort of say when I launched my test prep career many, many years ago, um, obviously with like the SAT that existed like in the early 90s, quantitative comparison questions were an initial part of like my training. It's sort of like it was a part mm-hmm. of the test and I taught that for probably... 10 years um, before the SAT made that kind of sad decision to remove quantitative comparison. So after SAT removed them, the only time where I could get a little taste of quantitative comparison was when I was either tutoring for the GRE um, or Mm -hmm. the independent school entrance exam, the IC test. So currently I don't get to, you know, swim in those waters for my, you know, my college admissions clients, but I do get to do that for my high school and my grad school's clients. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it, they're also just to me. I think that they're a, a nice mix of logic and math, right? A hundred percent, kind of. Well, there's sort of that puzzle or gamey aspect of them. You know, thinking about your mm-hmm. thinking and kind of running through scenarios. Um, and so, to me, it's fun when you you know you think about opportunities or options that now, of course, with quantitative comparisons, mean you may realize there's there are multiple solutions to a particular problem, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or or that you can't solve it, which is always a fun one on on the GRE. The D, well, the D or the fourth answer, right? You know. 
Yeah. So how do you master these? What are, what are some tips that you guys have? So we always describe it as a four-step process. Um, and again, this is really going back to my training with, with Princeton Review many, many years ago. But the first step is always to actually physically write A, B, C, D, you know, um, you know, we should say next to the question, obviously, if you're taking the Jerry, writing it on your, you know, kind of on your paper, on your on your whiteboard. Um, right. For the purpose, right, of keeping track of what are the potential options that I might find in attempting to solve this problem. So the first step is to write ABCD so that you can kind of keep track of, of where your thinking has gone or where your thinking may need to go in order to arrive at that final answer. So first step. Mm-hmm. Second step, of course, is if the opportunity is available to you to basically try to pick what we refer to as an easy number, meaning pick a number that you might be able to use in solving the problem that's going to allow you to come up with some definitive number for column A and column B, right? So like if I'm picking an easy number, I'm picking something that potentially I can even do the math in my head, right? Um, But Mm -hmm. I pick that number or numbers, whichever the case may be. And then I determine, right, like, what do I get? Was A bigger? Was B bigger? Was C bigger? In which case, this is where I return to that original ABCD that I wrote down to do some marking, right? So for example, if I determine that the value of column B is greater than the value of column A, now what I'm going to do with my ABCD is I'm going to say, well, if B was greater this first time, I know that the first time I solve it, I will automatically be able to eliminate two of the first three answer choices, ABC. So I get B, mm-hmm. I'm crossing off A and C. Then at that time, then that takes me to the next step, which of course is we say to try to pick a weird number to substitute mm-hmm. in where you can. And so of course, what are weird numbers? There are five weird numbers. We say they're zero, they're one, they're negatives. They could be fractions or decimals. Or in some instances, we might say larger numbers. And when we say larger not necessarily so large, but certainly something that's like going to be different than, so sometimes 10, more than 10 will serve as a large number. But the point is, right, you're you're trying mm-hmm. to pick that quote unquote weird number to essentially get something different than you got the first time. Because right. if I don't get column B as being greater the second pick, maybe I get A. Well, now I know I can cross off B because I found an instance where B was not greater than A or they were not equal, in which case that's going to lead me down the path of saying, oh, it must be D. So essentially what we we do is we're just, we're always trying to think about what can we pick in that second opportunity that isn't just a random pick, that's something that we know may skew the numbers in a different direction, in which case we're not getting that same value that we got the first time we picked. Um, now, obviously, there are going to be questions where there's no opportunity to pick anything. So one of the things we have to do with our students is make sure they're clear. Not every quantitative comparison is a pickable scenario. Um, right. However, where it gets kind of into a gray area, I think, is sometimes when you're dealing with geometry, um, there can be picking elements to solving geometry problems, but sometimes there are limitations, right? Rules of geometry that will dictate what what sort of you could pick or you couldn't pick based upon what you know in geometry. Yeah, like you can't pick a side length of zero. Exactly, right. Can't be negative, right? Sides can't be negative. So we we hope that in working with our students, there are some obvious things you cannot do. But of course, this is where strategy 
might meet content, right? So when we're working with our students for quantitative comparison, you can teach this strategy. But if a student doesn't have some of that basic sort of, let's say in this case, geometric logic about, you know, shapes and figures, then that's Mm -hmm. going to require a little bit more content review because it's going to go beyond what they would initially understand just using the strategy. Right. I mean, I think every, I I don't know if this is fair to say, but I think like every quantitative comparison problem is really just like layering a logic problem on top of a core concept math problem. A hundred percent. And I think so that's where you will see some students struggle more with quantitative comparison because that logic element is only sustainable if you have Mm -hmm. the content mastery, right? It's sort of like having a lot of options, but you will immediately decide which of those options you're pulling because you know sort of the fundamentals behind the topic, if you will. Mm -hmm. But that's also where, too, I would say the more practice you do with these types of questions, you can really improve your skill level because then you start to recognize, oh, where is there more, more potential like for certain kinds of topics, right? That you could say, oh, Mm -hmm. well, what do I know about triangles, right? Did I know that if the biggest angle is across from the biggest side, then that's going to narrow potentially what my options are going to be if I'm in a situation where I can pick easy numbers or try out numbers for those angle or side measurements, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that also the the other thing too is it, I mean, you're really kind of setting the stage correctly where it's, it, it is kind of, you have to figure it out. Like there's not going to be like a hard and fast rule for everything. Um, but definitely I think like the plugging in the five types of numbers is, is really important for like the algebraic equation ones, mm-hmm. which I do feel like are the most common though. You would probably know better than me. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the key one that I found really helpful was making sure you do a fraction or a number between zero and one. Right. That's usually where they get you. And that's where you get into even, this is silly, but like terminology, right? Did they tell you Mm -hmm. that X has to be an integer? You know, does it have to be a whole number? Um, Did they tell you X is an integer greater than one? In which case, if they've sort of set the stage like above column A and B for some parameters, well, I know, oh, if you tell me X is an integer greater than one, I know in my second pick, I've already lost the opportunity for you know, one, zero, fractions, Mm -hmm. negatives, in which case, what's the only thing that could potentially change my result going for the large number? So, so the, the, the faster and the the quicker students know, well, what are my options and looking at what parameters have been established above the question, then you start to be really good with the facility of knowing what, what you could try, how quickly that might be able to change your result, or just a basic knowledge of like, when you square a fraction, what happens versus when you take a square root, like knowing what direction that number is going to go in. You know, you're developing right. number sense as you're practicing using these potentially weird numbers. Right. And also keeping an eye out for the way that, um, you know, fractions and, and powers behave with each other. A hundred percent. Right. And the hard part for some students is sometimes they'll make these presumptions about what numbers will do without actually trying numbers. So the other thing that's tricky is, recognizing that sometimes we might make this really poor judgment without trying it out. And so there is that Mm -hmm. element of saying that's why we put the numbers in, right? If you just want to make this quick assumption about what the numbers will do or the variables will do, it's good to back that up with some solid numbers to ensure that your logic is actually correct. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And any other thoughts on how to master a quantitative comparison problem? 
I mean, the biggest thing I think ultimately it's always just pra- like practice. Like it's just so <laughs> helpful to, you know, it's one thing to sit and like study or memorize rules or formulas, but it's really practicing to see how these play out with the questions. Um, because I do think then you start to establish with your practice, like it just, that you're going to do them faster. You're going to do them faster because you're going to start seeing patterns and trends or where they might be going, what path they might be going down a question in a way that you're moving through the questions more quickly. Yeah. And, and what are you think some of the common paths, like just that you've seen, if you could, if you could label them and describe them, if, if not, that's okay too. But So common paths as in, um, like the way that the quantitative oh. comparisons are set up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess it's just sort of like, well, an example might be this, if they provide you a picture, an illustration, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that we would say is, you know, in quantitative comparison, especially if there is an illustration or figure, don't make assumptions about the um, scale, right? So for mm-hmm. example, they could give you, you know, what appears to be an equilateral triangle. And then you, but there's some information provided above that tells you that angle A is bigger than angle B or something like that, where we all, I think, can agree that when we see a triangle that looks equilateral, we're going to just, our brain's going to go to like, oh, each angle 60 degrees or all sides are equal. And that Mm -hmm. may be the trick that they're expecting you to sort of solve by visual rather than solve by information provided. So that's a great right. lesson learned to be like, oh, the visual isn't, you know, no picture may be what it seems. And so yeah. to me, that's a particular pathway of like learning. If I've done practice questions where I got burned my by my brain just going to the visual representation and answering, now the lesson learned is, hey, you know, no figure is as good as it looks, right? So then that leads to another strategy, right. which could be try redrawing that figure not based upon what they gave you, but based upon the information provided. So if they did tell you that angle A is bigger than angle B, redraw that triangle so it literally looks like angle A is bigger than angle B, and then you won't, your brain won't make that error in its thinking because it's stuck on the visual. Yeah, I think that's really smart. I also think that in general, like, I mean, most of the time when the GRE is giving you a graphic, it's not horribly misrepresented but i think that in quantitative comparison they they intentionally no it's it's not a multiple choice issue it is more of an issue for quantitative comparison is where i would say that that matters more for our students yeah yeah and I, i think the the other one, I mean, I don't know if we're just talking paths. I kind of asked the question because I was thinking about um, one that I see a fair amount, which is where they they throw you kind of two algebra equations, mm-hmm. and you can. And usually, it's a lot easier if you figure out how to simplify both of them. Yes, right, and and well, I'm part of it though. I do. We will say is this one of the challenges I think in general for GRE students is that. Very often we see in, in my practice a student who probably took very little, if any, math in college. That is a very common trend, at least for the students we work with, mm-hmm. in which case those algebraic skills are so rusty, right? They, right. you know, if they even had to take a math class in college, it might have been like in the very first year and then they sort of stayed away from it. So there's, there's some atrophying of, of those 
algebraic skills for sure. And, and well, certainly geometry skills as well. But, but I would say to you that, yeah, so sometimes one of the issues is just not being rusty about any algebraic skills because they haven't really been doing that for a number of years. Yeah. And that's where also you can, if you get your algebra skills back up, you can recognize things like, I forget, ah, I, I wish I knew what uh, some of these things were called, like their catchphrase names, right? But like uh-huh. the things where you've got, you know, equations that will foil in a certain way. Um, like difference of like, right, exactly. Foil, when you're yeah. like, we call them like factoring formulas, right? If you just recognize yeah. a factoring formula pattern, it goes a lot like difference of squares or things like that, um, exactly, or your middle yeah. term drops off or whatever. Yeah, though those are things that are just principles that you just really would not remember if you haven't seen them in a long time. And so again, that goes back to why yeah. practice is so important. You just it'll those skills will usually return, but it requires the sort of um, engagement with with these questions to be able to allow that to happen. Right. And just engagement with that type of question minus the logic portion too, right? Just <laughs> because it's on the GRE anyway. Yeah. 100%. 100%. What's tricky though, I think, you know, and this is kind of a whole other sort of, you know, thing would just be that um, you will, um, you know, you're dealing with a time management issue as well. So for some of our clients, like how how long do you sit on a quantitative comparison question before you just say, you know, I need to move on? and make a guess. Um, so that can sometimes be a factor, you know, is whether or not they are, um, you know, should they move on right. or should they stay? You know, that's a big thing. I'm curious if you agree with this advice, because uh, I've had other people interview on this podcast and they've given this advice, which is uh, they, I, I've had some people recommend that on quantitative comparison only, if you're going to guess, you should guess D the do, there is no way to solve this problem answer do you agree with that or what do you think well i will say what i think is sort of the challenge of um the you know the computer or the adaptive nature from the first module to the second module of gre is that it is hard to predict in a way like a paper and pencil test you usually see the standardization and that you're going to find like 25% of your answer choices will be d the the digital model or adaptive model, I sometimes think, I don't know, like, does that, does that present more or less? But I, what I would say, what we do tell our clients is that it's, it is important that going into your testing situation, especially if you're going to be uncertain or you don't have time to have selected like your go-to guess, like, so that you guess the same thing every time. Um, mm-hmm. However, what I will say is that if you're able to follow our strategies and do the first pick, right, you mm-hmm. should automatically have eliminated two of those four answer choices. And right. it will be two of the first three. So the irony is you're coming down to a 50-50 guess where D is always one of the options, right? Yeah. Right. So it is an interesting thing in terms of guessing because it it is a situation where you'd say, well, if D is always going to be one of those two options, <laughs> That maybe best guessing D is going to be always like your go-to pick. Yeah. I mean, his logic uh, was basically that because there is an answer choice that's, I don't, there's no way to solve the answer. If you're finding that there's no way to solve the answer, then maybe you're just correct about that. Right. Right. No, <laughs> right? I mean, well, that's, that's the dilemma. So this is where I would say to you, what we initially find with students is that 
their instincts in the beginning when they get stuck is to always pick D because they think the reason why I'm stuck is that there is something out there that I'm not thinking like that I'm I'm confused because there must I don't I don't know translates into a a cannot be determined pick um but the tricky part is once we sort of give these tools of the strategies of of thinking in different ways sometimes the answer is that yes there is one only one solution but I, I think the dilemma of of that fourth pick of cannot be determined is a time dilemma because you can still right. sit there running scenarios and you know you got to maybe do a gut check of do I think there's something still out there that I just haven't come up with? Or legitimately, I've tried like every type of weird number and it's time to just say it must be A or whatever. Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, I also think that like your approach of trying to at least eliminate one of the first three answers is super helpful. Anytime you're guessing, if you can get it down to a 50-50, it's a lot better than uh, hun- Yeah, exactly. The odds... 25. The odds start to become more in your favor for sure. And in the only, again, I'll go back to back practice. If you invariably miss questions because you have, there is an oversight in, a, in an, another solution that would have given you, you know, cannot be determined, then I think you'd say you know, the guessing towards D is a good strategy because it, you know that you have a history of missing something in your thinking. Right. Got it. That's why you should keep an error log. But that's uh, yes, that's a whole other episode, episode. right? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, this has been Jiri Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Amy Seeley from Seeley Test Pros. Achievable has a great online Jiri course that you can try for free at achievable.me. And if you like it, use the code podcast and you can get 10% off.